Hi, this is Ananda, President of the Hare Krishna Community near Washington, D.C. What follows is a Sunday talk recorded at our temple. Every Sunday we invite the public for meditation, a talk, and a vegetarian lunch. We'd love for you to join us. More information is available at iskonofdc.org. That's I-S-K-C-O-N of D-C dot org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the talk. So thank you so much for choosing to come today. I know that uh, there are many other things you could have done besides come to the Hare Krishna temple, and yet you chose to come and spend a little time here, and that means a lot. So thank you for your association and uh, presence. Very much appreciate So as Ananda was talking about, we are going to reflect a little bit on the value, the Gita value of affection. And as I was uh, preparing to talk with you about that topic, uh, the story of Lord Brahma stealing the cows, the cows and the cowherd boys came to mind. Who knows that story? Yeah. Does, any, does anyone att- can tell it in a nutshell? Want to volunteer to tell that story briefly? Maybe one of the children know the story. Nope. No takers. <laughs> they can tell the story. Well, just in a nutshell... Lord Brahma, for those of you who's, who's never been here before, just so they may not be feel Okay, so this is this may be a different sort of a story. Um, Lord Brahma, in the Hare Krishna movement, we, we actually, the creator of the universe isn't the supreme being, as it, as it might be in other religions, where you say the creator is a synom- synonymous as the supreme being. So Lord Brahma is for us the creator of the material universe. And... Um, when Krishna was on the planet as a little boy, he and his cowherd boyfriends used to go out in the forest with their little um, calves, little boys, little calves. And uh, their mothers would stay at home. They would pack a, a lunch for them to go out. And um, on this one particular day, they were out and about in the forest, and they sat and had their lunch while the cows, the calves went wandering off. And uh, all of a sudden, the cowherd boys noticed that the, they couldn't see the calves any longer. They had wandered way away as they were eating grass. They just kept walking. And suddenly they realized, oh my goodness, the cow, we don't know where they are. And the cowherd boys, they said, oh, well, well, let's go get them. We need to go get them because there could be danger out there. And Krishna says, no, no, you're my friends. You sit and finish your lunch. I will go look for the calves. So the cowherd boys, they went about their lunch, and uh, Krishna, he goes to look for the calves, and he doesn't see them anywhere. He keeps going, and he's searching for them, and he couldn't find them. So he comes back, and when he comes back, the cowherd boys weren't there either. They were both gone, suddenly vanished. And um, so Krishna started to think, hmm, this must be a trick from Lord Brahma, who's the creator. And... um, People who are in a big, big position like creator, often they get a little proud of themselves, which is what happened to Lord Brahma. So Krishna, he thought, I will uh, create a pastime. I will do something to try and uh, humble Lord Brahma so that he can understand my real position. Now, from Lord Brahma's position, he was watching the children play, and he thought, I will use this opportunity to uh, test how powerful this little boy Krishna is. And I will uh, take them away. I don't know if he put them in a cave where he hid them. I don't have a clue. But uh, Krishna knew, I will 
uh, just recreate them. I'm the supreme being. I can do whatever I like. And I will show Brahma that I can manifest myself or expand myself into those exact-looking little boys and those exact-looking little cows. And that's what he did. Uh, of course, nobody knew that's what he did. And when the uh, time evening came and the little boys and the cows needed to go home to their mothers, they went home and their mothers uh, and their mother cows, when they saw their calves and when the mother of the children saw their little boys, they were overwhelmed with affection for them. Their, uh, the cows' udders became overflowing with milk and they couldn't understand it. And this went on for an entire year. Uh, you know, again and again, their love kept growing and growing. And they didn't really understand that it was because Krishna had expanded himself in uh, the hearts of all of these little boys. And so Lord Brahma, after a year, he comes back and he sees the boys playing, the same boys that he stole and hid, and he wondered how on earth could this happen. And then he realized that... Uh, Krishna was more powerful than me, and he could he could expand innumerable uh, boys who look like cowherd boys and and calves, and so you know that that helped me start to think how uh, when Krishna is in everything, Krishna is in all living beings, but we don't see that all the time. Certainly, we don't remember that. But a sign of a person who has realized himself the soul within himself, realized Krishna not only within himself, but in the hearts of all others, is actually a completely realized soul. So we might not have that vision, but there are ways to, to get us there. And that's one reason why we have this Hare Krishna movement, so we can practice loving exchanges and learning how to develop pure love or, or, or affection I looked up this word affection in the Merriam, what is it, the Webster's Dictionary, and um, basically it boils affection as a feeling of care or fondness. Uh, it, it's really, it's, it's not this, it's love, but it's also a feeling of care, caring about other people, uh, caring about the earth. We care about our parents, because we can see Krishna there. We care about our children, because we see Krishna there. We care about the earth, because we know Krishna is there. And we might even care about our bodies, because we know it's not our body. It's Krishna has given it to us, and he's there. It's a vehicle. So um, as a, as aspiring devotees, it's it's really a challenge. In fact, it's the main challenge uh, the main lesson for us is to learn how to, to enter into this Vrindavan atmosphere of being able to see Krishna in the heart of everyone and having affection for everyone because we see Krishna there. Um, Mother Yamuna, who was a, she's no longer living uh, with us, but she uh, was one of Srila Prabhupada's first women disciples, and um, she left her memoirs in a very large two-volume book. And in that book, she tells a story about how she realized that Vrindavan is actually within our hearts. And um, she, one day, uh, Prabhupada and uh, Yamuna and Shamsundar, and there were a couple others, Gurudas, her husband, they had left Vrindavan to go to Delhi. And they were going on an airport to go out of the country and when they were sitting in the airport waiting for the airplane, um, there was a 
young girl with very short miniskirt in Delhi uh, with very high heels, clickety-clackety coming you know, forward and black stockings. And, and, um, and so Shamasundar leaned over to Srila Prabhupada and said, well, we're no longer in Vrindavan, are we? And, and Prabhupada looked at him and he said, oh, we are not in Vrindavan? He was in, physically in Delhi, but he said, oh, this is not Vrindavan also? And then Yamuna thought to herself and, and thought, yes, physically we're not in Vrindavan, but Prabhupada is seeing Vrindavan everywhere. And that was true also of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. At a certain point, every, every place was Vrindavan. He couldn't see anything separate because he saw Krishna in the heart of everyone, even that girl with the miniskirt and the high heel shoes and the black tights. Um, so we may not be so elevated, but it's it's a really it's a really helpful exercise to keep coming back to that uh, to that point of uh, Krishna being present there in the hearts of all beings. So I'm you all might be thinking I'm talking theory, and it's true we're talking theory until we realize they're integrated this truth, but. Um, Srila Rupa Goswami, who was the, the first uh, disciple of Lord Chaitanya to disseminate or to write uh, about how to develop this pure love, uh, this process of bhakti. And um, he gives us uh, some instructions. He gives us some um, clear guidelines on how do we enter into this affectionate relationship with not just devotees but other people. If Krishna is in the heart of all people, that means that all people have the potential to develop pure unconditional love for God. Indeed, all religious tri the essence of all religious traditions basically is to develop uh, either loving kindness like in Buddhism, in Christianity they would call it agape love, um, I don't know what they call it. In Islam, there's a word for it as well. In Buddhism, they also call something like metta, which is unconditional compassion. Um, but there's guidelines on what we might do when we find ourselves not remembering in relationship to others uh, and to cultivate this affection. And he gives us six things. And I wonder if anybody can name them. The six loving exchanges that we might engage in. Yes. Loud, you could have a lot of people. One exchange is revealing our mind and confidence and hearing other devotees revealing our mind and confidence. And this is on many levels. Yes. It could be in the beginning, just even emotionally, socially, and then it can evolve ultimately to our realizations of our relationship with God and Christian. Nice. Very good. So what he has said there, I'll repeat it because it's hard to hear. Uh, those actually two you've named is that revealing one's mind in confidence. And that would mean um, it could be talking about your struggles. I'm having challenges or my celebrations. I met somebody and they took a book or they asked me about Krishna or I gave somebody prasadam and listening and sharing that reaching out and, and sharing our hearts in confidence and in confidence being confidential. This is really, really key. Because if you actually open your heart, it means you're being vulnerable. You're taking a risk. You're sharing something that normally people don't share. And that means you don't want to see it on Facebook tomorrow. <laughs> you know? You don't. You Sometimes we do struggle. It's not that we're, we go from a conditional soul to self-realized soul. It's a long journey. And Prabhupada describes that it takes us 30 years at least 
to chant purely without offense. And that's the criteria to be able to see Krishna all the time. So it's a long journey, and we need each other uh, to rely on to help us uh, remember who we are. Okay, so those are two. Who knows other ones? Yes? Exchanging gifts. So that's two more. I give a gift. And I receive a gift, so it takes two. It's a mutual thing. To be in relationship means two. It's never just one. So that's four. Who has two more? There's two more. Yeah? Prashadam. Okay, so you, you nailed it. The two last ones are offering prashad and receiving prashad. So that's one thing we do here. We give prashadam, we take prashadam, but it's one, one of our favorite things to do. And as you have said, when we, uh, when we grow and uh, we start to really immerse ourselves in Krishna conscious philosophies, our reciprocation is about sharing insights and doing all, all these things in community. Um, interestingly enough, there are other people besides the Hare Krishna people who have thought about what makes connecting relationships. Psychologists and behavioral scientists, they think about these things. And certainly as a chaplain, um, you know, the expectation for all clergy is that really good at this sort of thing. Relationships are supposed to be, they're supposed to be really expert because you are, in my case, as a hospital chaplain or a hospice chaplain, you're knocking on doors of people you don't know at all. Just like going to a book distribution, you're, you may be knocking on a door and you don't know who's going to open the door and suddenly you have to create connection with them in a way that moves their heart, touches their heart. The same thing is true if you're a hospital chaplain. You're going, maybe you're seeing 25 people in a day, and you're going room to room, and you have to get get in the room, and sometimes they'll say, get out, God, don't get out of the room. I have no, I don't want to see anybody in God. I don't interest it. And somehow uh, work your way into the heart, and you all can only do that by connecting behavior, creating caring, connecting touching the heart behavior. So there's this one guy, a name, doctor named Dr. Chapman, and he has, uh, and you probably heard of it, he has come to the conclusion that there are something called five love languages. And uh, different people uh, respond more to different ones. It, it lines up pretty closely to our Vaishnava love languages or our exchanges. He says words of affirmation. People, when we want to connect and, and help people come closer to us, find ways to affirm them. Find things about them that you notice. First of all, we notice all the things we don't like about people. That's pretty automatic. The mind is, is such a rascal that it's always... It, we know pretty clear what we don't like, but we often see what we like about what other people do or the way they said something or uh, even with the way they carry themselves or navigated a conflict. We don't say so many times we don't even say it. We, we would easily say what we don't like, but we often don't say. So words of affirmation, he says acts of service. People respond if you come and help. You're carrying a heavy suitcase and a stranger comes out of nowhere or you have your groceries and they've exploded all over the, the floor of the grocery store and somebody comes and helps you, uh, you're, you're immediately feeling uh, grateful and uh, your heart is open to that person. Receiving gifts, that's one of ours. Uh, spending quality time, he says, is really important. What's quality time? That would be, who can define that? For us... What would be quality time for a devotee? Going out on Harinam, sharing that time, people who love to do that. What other things we do as devotees that are considered quality time? 
speaking about Krishna. You know, it's something you need to do because you want to remember and you need to do it and we all do it together and it, it becomes much more tasty if we do this as a group. Uh, japa time together, uh, whatever. Eat, reading together, taking prashadam together, which we'll do in a few minutes. Um, last one is physical touch. Now, when he's, he's talking about that, we would translate that as compassionate hug. We do devotee hugs. You know, it says in the, in the scriptures that if we, if we uh, touch devotees, our, it will purify our need to touch in a perhaps more sensual way, even um, to hug cows. Hugging a cow is, is meant to, to purify the desire for touch and, and help a person remain celibate just by hugging cows. And we've got two cows out there waiting to be hugged. I don't know. Are they huggy cows? I've never hugged those cows. They have a lot of fur, and they have a lot of dirt on that fur. But, but anyway, I would interpret that. We would call it as pastoral touch. In, in a chaplain work, just do sometimes your bedside and just... Touch somebody in a way that means I am there or creating connection. So touch is a connecting thing. Another psychologist named William Glasser, he has a list of seven connecting behaviors. And I, I tell my students they need to tattoo this on their arm because we forget these. It's so simple, but to forget supporting other people, uh, encouraging them, listening to them, accepting them as they are, trusting them, uh, and uh, respecting them. And the last one is negotiating differences, which I find my chaplain students have the most difficulty with. How do I say my truth and not hurt your feelings? That's all. They, well, I, well, why didn't you say something? Well, because I didn't want to hurt their feelings. And when you're in a medical environment like I am with my students, sometimes if you don't say what you see, it's a life and death issue. You've got somebody who, for example, uh, in Los Angeles, the hospital I typically work out of is downtown East Los Angeles, and we have so many homeless people, and um, and often they they come because it's cold. It's a place to stay, and so if I can get myself in the hospital, I have a free bed and I have free food, and uh, the staff know that, so they're trying to get them out. But sometimes they, they put people out on the street who aren't recovered, and they're not ready to go out. And so as a chaplain, our role is, is to uh, advocate. And uh, some people die of exposure if you don't say, you know, nurses, doctors, I don't think this person is ready to go out. You can't really force them out until they're really healed. But if you don't say that because you're worried about hurting somebody's feelings, it can be the death of a person. So this is an important skill to learn. How do I speak my truth and at the same time communicate care? I bet many of us have had the experience in, even in the devotional society, where sometimes we have a difference of opinion, we don't know how to say it, so we grump about it, we leave it, we hold it in, and we grump about it, and it just keeps annoying us, but we don't know how to communicate that in a caring way so that you win and I win, and we both walk away feeling satisfied that we have been heard. Um, some of you may know Vaisesika Das, who comes here very often, I believe, um, and he had, a, he had a, a, also a list of things, tips, and uh, I, I liked it very much, so I stole it. So I thought I'd share his list of, of surviving in, in, in devotion, devotional relationships. One of the things he says is really important for devotees who are associating with other devotees is to remember that ISKCON is not a utopia. 
to not expect that it's going to be a perfect, always harmonious society. We're people. We're real people who have, we're conditioned souls. We, we are affected by the modes of nature. So don't be disappointed if people aren't perfect. Just that'll help you a lot. If you, you, much of our disappointment comes from having unrealistic expectations of other people. So you can just take that off the bat. We expect to fail. We expect to be imperfect. And people then are imperfect. You're going, well, oh, oh, I don't expect better. <laughs> Prabhupada called that, what is it, shooting the rhinoceros. If you, if you actually shoot a rhinoceros, people will think, oh, that's a great job. If you don't, people won't ex didn't expect you to do it anyway. So not, nobody's disappointed. Second one, he suggested to focus on the similarities between ourselves and others and rather, rather than look at the differences. Try to focus on how we, we love Prabhupada together. We love uh, worshiping the deities. We love to sing Harinam. We might love uh, Rasgula together. We might like Kittari or something we can share. But focus on the, the service that person is rendering. And even non-devotees who may not be aware that Krishna is in their heart are Prabhupada says are still devotees to some degree, so looking for ways, well, how they, they do service to Krishna unknowingly, even, maybe picking up trash that is harming Mother Earth. That would be a way to see that, oh, they're doing service to Krishna. Third, uh, when you are not in harmony with someone, step back before you start committing offenses. Just be aware, oops, my mind is saying all these horrible things, don't say it. Step back and recover and um, wait. And then try to think of what good qualities. Glorify them instead. Replace that negative thought with something that is positive. Pretty much like the one before. Look for, look for wonderful things that you see them doing. And uh, number four, he puts, Get, go out of your way to take interest in people. Um, this is an interesting thing because all of us know what it feels like to be cared for. When we go to a place, a job, a store, we know what it feels like when somebody's welcoming, they smile at us, they reach out, hello, how are you doing? Um, but how often do we do it? We're, we know what it feels like and we like it, but we may not be the ones reaching out. So he's suggesting in the devotee community to, to make a point, take a risk, reach out to others, and you know, ex express some welcoming. Five, and this is a really interesting one, imagine that everyone has a sign around their neck that says, make me feel special. That's a, that's a, that's a neat thought. And after he said that in his lecture, he asked everybody in the audience to turn to the person next to them and make them feel special. So I'm going to ask you to do that right now. Do something, anything that makes the person sitting next to you, how would you communicate to the next person sitting next to you that you're special? Go. That, wasn't a, that, was, that was a real task. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience. Suddenly the atmosphere in the room changed. You know, people loosened up. They were giggling a little bit. It kind of felt a little weird. This is really creepy. You know, got to go, you know. But, but I mean, it, there's a diff different energy that happened when people started to connect. Because we're social beings, the soul is social. And we, just like animals, in order to survive, animals live in groups. Every species has a group. And the, the greatest need that each of us have is the need for love and belonging. Every single behavioral science model 
um, will tell you. They may have many other changing parts, but one central part they all share is that it, the motivation, the thing that motivates human beings it, mostly is the need for love and belonging. And, and our fear of rejection is so great that we will go to great lengths, uh, clothes we wear, things we say, hairdos, food we eat, the people we hang out, has so much to do with our fear of being rejected. We want to belong so very much. Um, the last point I want to make, and then I'm going to open it up to some questions and some reflections. Um, as I work in the field of death and dying, you could say I'm, I'm in the death trade. Some people call it that cynically. And wonder how on earth could you do the work that I do? Because you're really dealing with uh, some pretty depressing stuff. Uh, often you're invited into the death and dying scenarios of people that you don't know. And suddenly they're crying on your shoulder and telling you their life story. And when you leave, you feel like you're part of the family. It's like when they invite you to the funeral and, you know, uh, and, and they're able to say things to you that they haven't told their wife or their children or any of that thing. But as I have reflected and had to face death so many times in the lives of other people, what I've realized is that we have to practice death every day. That's what we're doing. This is what it is. If you don't practice death every day, you will not be ready. Uh, many people are surprised be because death is like birth backwards. And any woman who's had a baby knows you carry a baby for nine or ten months, and you know it's coming. You've, everybody's telling you it's going to pop out, and you've got this huge belly, and you've got a little doorway portal to get that big thing out of there, and you know it's going to hurt a little bit. And so, But you don't think about it because you're busy with the cute little clothes and getting ready and all that stuff. And then finally, all of a sudden, the body tells you it's coming. You know, you have water breaking, you've got these weird things going on, you can't stop it. Uh, you can't, you know, your body starts moving into birthing. And it takes sometimes hours, it takes days, but at that moment when the birthing pro process starts, you have no longer any control. There's no control. It's just, the body is just doing it. And death is like that too, is that we know it's coming. We know it's coming. We know that probably our heirs will become disturbed. We know that we won't be able to eat. I just watched my father die in, in the last uh, few weeks. Everybody said, when he stops eating, we know it will be very soon. And he, they kept chugging in the food, you know, and I don't know why he was still eating it. Um, but all of a sudden he decided I don't, I, he refused food. And then as he progressed on, there was a, what's called terminal restlessness, where the body starts to pick at itself and see, who knows, people who died before, or angels, or they see something, and they really lose their external sight. The last two days when I looked in my father's eyes, I could see he could not see me, but his eyes were wide open, a film comes down on the eyeballs. And I couldn't see his eyeball, but I saw a f it was the strangest experience. And then you have what's called active dying. It's like the birthing process backwards. And uh, the breathing changes, the body uh, temperature changes, um, and you can no longer stop it. It's, it's, it's going, it's going. And finally, the, bre the last breathing, and it's done, and, and you're out. Uh, of that, where well, you've gone out another portal. So the reason I'm telling you this is that uh, when you die, 
you lose everything. You lose your pride. You lose your dignity. My poor father, at ninety, almost ninety-three, he couldn't, he couldn't even go to the bathroom himself. He was managed in the bed because he couldn't walk any longer. He couldn't hear. He couldn't see everything, and and uh, so no point being proud about anything. And uh, he had to become so tolerant. He wasn't a real tolerant man when he was strong. He's quite a proud man, but he learned very quickly as he. Uh, you know, was was dying. I have to become tolerant because I have no choice. This is happening to me. I have to be tolerant. I have to be humble because I'm depending on so many people. I have to be um, I have to be appreciative because so many people are tending me, and and I'm dependent on them. We walk around in our strong bodies thinking that we're independent, but no, we need each other so much, and especially as we get older, we need others. So. Every moment when we face hunger, when we face thirst, when we're tired, this is an opportunity to practice because you're going to be really tired in the dying process, just like in the birthing process. It's, it's exhausting, the whole process. And so we can practice learning to uh, surrender to Krishna instead of our hunger, surrender to Krishna instead of our anger, surrender to Krishna instead of our uh, tiredness and so on. And our, when we feel pain, okay, this is an opportunity to try and remember Krishna in this pain. Uh, and so if we practice life as uh, instead of our mundane ego, which is attached to the body, which will prevent us from seeing Krishna at death, we can practice these qualities of affection even when we don't feel like it, trying to coax the mind to see Krishna in all things and in all places and in all circumstances and all people. And in this way, we will practice being able to see Krishna at the moment of death. So I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to ask if, first of all, if there's any questions or reflections. Anybody have a comment or a question? I've got, I've got some questions for you if you don't, so you better cough something up. I have a test. We are going to have a pop quiz. Any questions? Oh, yes. A comment. Okay. My godbrother, Mama Thakur, commissioned me to write a book. My name is Sugata Das, called the Sugi Niti, of all the uh, experiences and hard knocks I've learned in devotional service. And I'm still working on it. It's unpublished. He passed away uh, when he was 22 years old. We grew up together. And uh, there's a famous person from India called Chanaka Pandit. And he wrote the, uh, some aphorisms about life and politics called the Chanaka Niti. So this is going to be my contribution. This is a, a joke, but there's some truth in it. So I'm going to add two more loving reciprocations uh, to Rupa Goswami's Upadeshamrita. And that is harassing, teasing, and criticizing devotees and harassing, teasing, and being criticized by the devotees because we're all human and it's kind of funny. Well, and you see the Cowherd Boys did a lot of playing like that, too, splashing and throwing, throwing each other's boxes. Any other questions or comments before, we, before I do something with you? I guess you wanted to know what that is. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hare Krishna. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about making connections and how you make other people feel good. Uh, there's a story, which is a true story. A man was um, in the hospital, like you're saying, he was very close to his death. His son was in army, and he wanted to see him before he passes away. So he had already sent him that I'm in the hospital. 
very short time if you can come on over. And it's, uh, one evening, uh, his son comes in in uniform, and as soon as he comes in, he says, oh my God, thank you very much, my son. You came on over, very short period of time, extended his hand, and the young man held his hand, then he closed his eyes, and now I can go in peace. And all, he, all night he sat in there, we hour of the morning, father passed away. So the nurse came in and he told the young man, how lucky your father is that you just came in time. He says, not my father, I don't even know who he is. So I came to see a friend in the hospital, came in the wrong room. As soon as he came in, he said, my son, you came on over. Just held his hand. Amazing. There's no accidents. No. That's Thank amazing. You. He needed that. And he saw his son in that. Yes. Uh-huh. Kimberly. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I was just, since you've had so much experience with being people um, when they're about to leave their body, I was just wondering if you had any other realizations. I'm sure you had many, but if there's any realizations that come to mind that you could share with us um, that you've come to experience after, like, over time with your line of work and with your other personal experiences? Oh, that's a big question. Oh, my God. I, if, I, if I answer that question, I'll, we will be here for another three years. Because, um, and I want to, I want, we have a few minutes, and I want to make sure that you all do some other reflecting that I'm going to guide you. Just this last experience with my father dying, uh, you know, watching, watching that process and seeing how much morphine people put there for pain, and the nurses all feeling satisfied, oh, my father is so comfortable. And uh, knowing in my history, having uh, ministered to people who woke up in heart surgery and woke up in leg amputations and things, and uh, even though to the doctor's eye, they were in medical coma, and they woke up and said, I felt everything you did, and I was screaming and trying to let you know it, but I was frozen because you had medicated me so deeply. So watching my father at this moment, and you know the hospice nurses were so proud of themselves, he's so accomplished, he's really comfortable. I wondered about that, because to our eyes, it looked like he was comfortable, but we don't know what his, he could have been seeing the Yamadutas, we don't have a clue. What, it, what his experience was, and that led me to do a little bit of research in near-death experiences and, um, you know, what other people experience when they die and the, in the transition. And pretty much everybody I have researched, you know, and there's tons of it online if you're interested in this topic, feel a, a, a sense of when their body is, they're out of their body, the pain is gone. It's just gone, you know, their experience. Now, I, there may be other people who who have to immediately go to some place and experience a lot of pain on a subtle plat platform but they all said that the pain is gone that pe that piece was comforting to me watching him in so much pain um the other thing that i realized too is that just because the body may be dead the this, the soul we know this often is not aware that it has died it and so often tries to it's one reason we cremate is that that the it frees the soul from trying to go back in the body because it's confused it's kind of a moment suddenly i'm here suddenly i'm out of this body i do believe probably my father was standing beside us watching us watch him i do i it, there was this sense of presence uh, and i do believe that there's 
somehow or other, we're not the body. And when you're free from the body, you may be hovering. People having near-death experience are hovering over, watching them do surgery and whatnot. That, uh, and, and the other piece is realizing we really shouldn't be. Uh, I know that it's an old saying, don't talk about the dead, don't criticize the dead. But I, I do believe that, uh, that just like Srila Prabhupada, he, he's not the statue. He is totally present and he's aware, he's witnessing as we pray to him. And uh, I think departed people also, as, just like ghosts, when you start talking about them, they hover around. And since the spiritual world isn't out there somewhere, it's a holographic universe that's existing as close to you as your breath. You just can't see it because you don't have this spiritual vision. That it's really important uh, if you have uh, if you have things you haven't said to a departed person, it's never too late to say it, even if they their body's gone. You can still say it. They will hear hear you. It's never too late to say, thank you, I love you, I'm so sorry, I wish I had said. So many people's loved ones die, and they haven't seen them for 20 years. And uh, they regret so much that they didn't say what they needed to say. And all the more reason to, to live in the present and, and learn to die, live, right here, right now. Is that okay? <laughs> okay, yes. Oh, last question. Okay. Oh, what do you think? It's tough. Yeah, I can't remember when I died last time, so it's a hard question. I think people do this different. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. Okay, looks like we're not going to have questions for you. Yes. So I often wonder at the time of death, say, someone is chanting, right? Is the person able to hear? Right? I mean, I heard the sense of hearing is the last one it to is. go. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know. Here's my take on it. My father was 85% deaf. And, and uh, he didn't have his hearing aids there in the end. But, and he had dementia on top. But there was some, there was some form of communication. We're, we're not the body. There's, we're not the mind either. We're not our intelligence. There's something perfect, pure, eternal about who we are essentially. And when those coverings come off, it doesn't matter. We're not, we're not communicating through the words. And everybody that I have heard talk about their near-death experience says, in the space beyond the material realm, you are not communicating the same way. It's just a thought, and you understand it. And in, in, in past, present, and future is all smashed into present. There's no future and there's no past. You're, you're in that space. So I would say... Yes, you can hear. Even if you you are so unconscious, there's part of you that hears and everything. I would say yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you for the class and what you said about that we should uh, learn how to meet death every day echoes in parampara what Srila uh, Prabhupada said about an intelligent person should always keep death in their front. Yeah, my, my, my sister thinks I'm obsessed with death. She, she's not a devotee. And um, I mean, she's no kidding. She really thinks I'm nuts. And um, 
you know, how can you do this work? And it's so awful. I have to go to the morgue sometimes. I take my students. The first day of class, we go and watch three bodies get cremated in the county cremation. Like, who wants to do that? It re- sounds a depressing job. But in fact, uh, the, the people who do this sort of work are the most funny, happy, light people. All of my, that's why I love these chaplain people are just absolutely, they, they see death every moment. And you can't do it if you don't face your death every moment too. And boy, does, does life look precious when you do. It's like, oh my God, I'm so glad that I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> yes, and I think we're running out of time. But This yeah. is kind of quick. As a devotee, you, you understand things that a lot of people maybe don't. So are you able to inject your Krishna consciousness maybe through sound mantra mm-hmm. to people as they're dying? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I was able to chant for my father, but at the hospital. Yeah, yeah I, yes. Singing. I mean, I take my harp. I have a little harp, a therapy harp that I take around to people. And when words run out, sometimes you don't have words. You're so sad. But I will play. It may be even a hymn, Christian hymn. Um, I, I'm not able to, and it's, no, it's not even our philosophy to proselytize. That's considered ethically inappropriate for a person who's suffering to now. They're vulnerable, they will, and you, you promise them all kinds of things in the name of Krishna or Allah or Buddha or whatever. We, our philosophy is, don't talk of unconditional love. You show me what that feels like with your behavior. So the training is... Uh, and I get all theology students, whether they're Muslim students, Buddhists, I get Christian priests and priests-to-be, Methodist ministers. They've all gone. They have big heads full of theology. And then they have no idea how to go into it. They're scared to death to go in a room and say, hello, hello, to talk to someone who's dying. They're really scared. And so the training is how do you, how do you become a loving unconditionally loving, compassionate companion to someone in pain without feeling the need to teach them something. Just accompany them in their pain. And if you've ever had a deeply suffering moment, all this talking, and now I'm going to tell you a story from the Bhagavatam. I mean, it's just not the right thing you want to hear right now. You want someone just to be with you. Shut up. Just be with me. Yeah. Does that make sense? That's the that's the preaching. Is don't say anything. Show me what bhakti is by your behavior. You can. I sprinkle. I have a little Ganges water spray. You know, you can do that. You know, you can do that. Yeah, garlands, you know, I take prasadam as a big one for nurses and doctors. They love food. I have little gratitude snacks. I make these little balls of date balls, and and they love it. You know, they don't know what they're eating. Sure, and I've put... No, I have, but they do know. I was just in the Fredericksburg Mary Washington Hospital for six months. I have put all Prabhupada's books in their library to pass out. They have Bhagavad Gita's and Ishupanishad's. And when I was in LA, I, because I, I have a network of chaplains who run spiritual care departments, oh, I, I probably distributed 600 Bhagavad Gita's in hospitals. You know, they take, they take cases of them. Uh, in their spiritual care, in, they have Bible, Quran, and now they have Bhagavad Gita's. There's a hospital Gita. Uh, I know we're running out of time, and here she comes. <laughs> okay, so I guess we have to stop. Thank you. <laughs>